Uh, kids, we're going to let you go in just a second, but I need you up here to help me. So kids, come up here. Come right over here. I'm going to sit down. All right, so in our, you guys just chill out right here. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Who made the best dessert for the auction tonight? Oh, Woo! How much money should we bring for your desserts? $2,000. $2,000. These better be some good desserts now. I'm talking. Hey, buddy, did you make one? Five, five thousand. I think that's a good start. Oh, did you make pies? Is she gonna buy pies at Sam's? Yeah, yeah. We know this trick. Her mom's, his mom's like, no way. All right. So, um, in today's teaching, today's teaching comes with treats. So, who would like a treat? You guys want a treat? All right, so everyone, you can have a napkin. So John Campbell, will you pass those out? Napkins to everybody. All right, so let me ask you, what is your favorite fruit? Who can tell me? Grace, what do you think? Strawberries. Strawberries. Harper? Watermelon. Watermelon. All right, go ahead. Blueberries. Blueberries. Piper, what about you? Orange. Oranges. Those are all good. All right, so today we're going to give you a fruit that maybe you have never had before. It's a very special fruit, and you know what? Jesus used to eat this fruit, all right? So it is called, here, I'll sit down here. It is called figs. How does that look? What? All right, who wants to try one? You can, you can try one. They, they taste kind of sort of like raisins. These are dried figs. Dried figs. So take one. Yeah. John Campbell, come on. Take two. All right, Micah, do you want to try one? All right, buddy. Get one in there. All right, now take them back there. You guys can roll out to your class. You can roll out to Mr. David. All right, so Madeline, will you come up here and help me? I know Madeline would be the last one to eat one of these in a hundred years. So I'm going to ask you, Madeline, will you, uh, and maybe Stephen, you can help her. Stephen, pass out uh, paper or napkins, Madeline, and let's pass out figs to everyone in the audience. Have you guys ever had figs before? These are dried figs, apparently uh, not Fig Newtons, not the same. Um, real uh, fresh figs are out of season, apparently. What do I know about figs? So these are dried, but I'd love for you to taste one and try one. And uh, they, they kind of sort of apply to our teaching today, but you know me, any chance to get treats or food included, I'm going to take it. Um, we've been in this series uh, about the gospel of Mark, the essential gospel of Mark, looking at, at the mystery of Mark. There's, there's this mystery about who Jesus is and, and what does it mean to be the Messiah and what is the kingdom of God and all of this this mystery surrounds us, and what does this mean? It's all wrapped up in Mark. But in Mark, in chapter 4, it says, you have been given to know the mystery. Like, like you get to know. Like, those of you who read and know Jesus, you, you get to know the mystery. It, it's, it's knowable for you. And so we've been going chapter by chapter through... Um, through Mark, and this week we're going to be in chapter 11. So if you brought your Bibles, you can turn there. 
Chapter 11 is this, this turning point in Mark. Everything up to this point has been uh, circling around. Yeah, everybody make sure you get your figs. It's figalicious. Everything has been circling around location. Uh, uh, Mark is a gospel driven by location to location. So Jesus has been in Galilee. Jesus has been uh, uh, across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has been all over. But, but he's making a beeline towards a city. It is a city where the mystery is going to be revealed. It is the place where everything is going to happen. And it is the city of Jerusalem. And in chapter 11, Jesus enters Jerusalem. Now, you guys remember this scene. Uh, uh, Jesus sends his disciples as he's waiting in Bethany and Bethpage right outside the city about a mile away. Sends his disciples to go and, and to get a colt, to get a donkey for him to ride in. Uh, a donkey that's never been ridden before. And they go and they collect this donkey and they place Jesus on the donkey. And all of a sudden, Jesus is entering the city for Passover, which is this huge, huge, huge celebration. All the Jews would have been coming to the temple. And it says that crowds begin to line the street. We think this probably has a little bit to do with the story of Lazarus, which Mark doesn't include. But in other Gospels, we know as soon as Jesus, or as Jesus is approaching um, Jerusalem, he has healed Lazarus, raised Lazarus from the grave, and that's kind of got people's attention, right? And so as Jesus begins to ride into the city as a, as a king would, or as a, a warrior would, or as a general would, or as a, we talked about Patton a couple of weeks ago, as a commander would enter the city, Jesus approaches Jerusalem, and the people line the streets holding, what are they called? They're, they're holding the palm branches, or they're called hosannas. Hosanna literally means just save us. Save us, it was the Jewish cry for, for someone to come in, like a patent, to come in and rescue them from the oppression of the Romans, to, to lift up Israel, God's chosen people, and establish them again in the world. And so you get this amazing scene of crowds gathering along the street, holding their hosannas, they're singing out, they're crying out, hosanna, 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 and they're expecting a patent, they're expecting a warlord, they're expecting a general, they're expecting someone leading an army, and what they get is Jesus on a donkey. And it had to be a, a, an interesting thing. Did they lean over to the person next to him and say, is, is that really him? That's, that's him? And again, the mystery of Jesus is, is, surrounds, it fills this gospel, because the, the, the person, the Messiah they are expecting is not the Messiah that arrives. And Jesus enters Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, and he um, goes somewhere. Where does he go? Where's the first place he goes once he enters Jerusalem? Do you guys remember? He goes to the temple. In verse 11, it says, so Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. And it says, after looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with his 12 disciples. All right, so they have this massive, big ticker tape parade for Jesus. He enters the city and he gives a speech. Nope. He enters the city and uh, uh, um, does this, this great teaching, right? No. It says that he goes to the temple and looks at it. It's this idea that he goes to the temple and and he takes a real hard 
look. It would have been an awesome opportunity for him to go up to the steps of the, steps of the temple and deliver. I mean, all the people are here. The crowds are here. Let's, let's, let's do a sermon on the mount, take two right now. This would be a great place, right? But it says when Jesus gets to the temple, he looks around carefully. Like, uh, like, like he's on some sort of scouting trip. He, lo- he looks around and then he leaves. Uh, he's, he's gathering information. Maybe he's wondering if the rumors that he's heard about the temple and what it's become are true. He takes in the whole scene, the task before him. Maybe he's even wondering, and you'll see as this unfolds in the next few verses, maybe he's un- uh, Maybe he's wondering, will I step into my purpose and my calling, or will I find some excuse not to? So Jesus comes to the temple. He takes a good, hard look at things, and then he leaves. And on the way out of town in verses 12 through 14, I want you to see what happens. Again, we've talked about in Mark how Mark kind of sandwiches stories together. Uh, He he compresses things together to add deeper levels of meaning, and that's what's going to happen here. In uh, verse 12 of chapter 11, it says, The next morning, as they were leaving Bethany, so Jesus has left Jerusalem. It's the next morning. Now they're heading back to Jerusalem. As they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry, and he noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off. So he went over to see it, to see if he could find any figs, but there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat your fruit again. And his disciples heard him say it. All right, so this is an interesting scene. Um, Fig trees kind of in the ancient world were, uh, I don't know, they're like the Circle K. Like everyone would stop on their trip and get a snack or, you know, it was just kind of the, the, they were known as the traveler's friend. Uh, It was a place that, you know, if you see a fig tree, it's a place, hey, I can get a meal, I can get a snack, I can get a burrito, I can get whatever, you know. Um, You can get some sort of sustenance there. And so Jesus sees this fig tree in full leaf and he's hungry And he goes to the fig tree, but what does he find? Nothing. And and Mark gives us this really interesting insight, which makes this story even more interesting. It says that it wasn't the season for figs, that it it was too early. And we know that Passover season, it's, it's too early. The figs haven't come yet. And so Jesus does something really uncharacteristic of of him, for him. At least it appears that way. Jesus approaches a fig tree that looks like it would have figs, even though it doesn't because it's not time for figs yet. And so Jesus' response is to curse the fig tree. Does this seem like the Jesus you know and love? No, I mean, this seems so... So out of, out of, out of character for him, was, was he just in a bad mood because he was hungry you know, it seems a little bit unfair to the fig tree, right? Like, it's not the season for figs. And, and there's this interesting thing that it, it kind of leaves us happen, It leaves us hanging. Like, why would he do this? Why, why is he just mad at this tree? Like, this doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't make sense until you read the next story. Look in verses 15 through 19 with me. It says, On reaching Jerusalem... 
So Jesus left Jerusalem. On the way back, he curses a fig tree. And as he reaches Jerusalem for the second time, after taking a hard look the first time, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, it is not written, uh, uh, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for the nations. But you have made it a den of, what's the word? Robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him. Because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples left the city again. All right, so you see this kind of entering and exiting of, of Jerusalem happening. Jesus enters Jerusalem after, after cursing a fig tree and goes immediately to the temple where he was the day before, right? Where he went and took a good, hard look at what was happening. And Jesus does something again that would seem uncharacteristic of him, right? He starts turning tables over. He starts driving people out. You, you guys know this story? Have you heard this story? Is it familiar to you? Like, this is not the Jesus that rides in on a donkey, right? You know? Uh, and if anything, the people of that time would have expected Jesus to the Messiah to come and rescue them. If Jesus is gonna, if the Messiah is gonna turn tables over and kick doors in, that should be at the at the Roman office, right? It should be kicking out the oppressive power of that's that's holding dominion over the Jewish people to release them and free them. But Jesus doesn't go to the Roman military and start driving them out. Where does he go? He goes to the temple. And he's driving out the, the money changers and those selling animals. And uh, I, I think it's interesting to note, too, that it doesn't say that anyone stopped him. And there's a good reason for that. Because the temple workers were ripping people off. Here's how this works. It works a couple of ways. So uh, once a year, you come to the temple, you bring... Uh, um, your, your sacrifice, maybe a lamb, maybe doves. And, and you guys know from Leviticus, from, from the Old Testament, that when you come to bring a sacrifice on the altar, it has to be clean. It has to be free of blemishes. So uh, maybe you're a family and you bring a lamb to be sacrificed on the altar. So this is no ordinary lamb. You don't treat this lamb like the rest of your sheep in, in, uh, in your flock. This is the special one, Right? It gets to stay inside. The rest of the sheep can stay outside. This lamb is, has been inspected to make sure it is, it is free of blemishes. It is your sacred lamb. And you come from wherever you come around the country and you approach the temple. And a couple of things happen. Um, the first is that the temple only accepts the temple shekel. The temple only accepts temple currency. And so you would kind of pay your, your tax or your tithe to the temple at this time, but they wouldn't accept Roman currency or any other currency. So the first thing you have to do when you get to the temple is exchange your money for the temple money at a 4 to 8% interest, right? See how this works? And everyone's coming. And after you exchange your money and pay the conversion fee, I guess, then you take that special lamb. And I mean, this is the lamb you've been holding and carrying and 
cared for and cherished, and you have to take it to a priest to be inspected. So the lamb has to be without blemish. But when you approach the priest, what's the first thing he sees? What's the first thing he finds? Well, did you check behind its ear? Because right there is a blemish. So this lamb that you've been loving and caring for and cherished, and, and it's the best one you got, it just won't do. You won't be able to sacrifice this lamb. Instead, you'll have to buy one of our lambs for hmm, a 15 times markup. See how this works? But you have no choice. And so you pay this exorbitant cost for this other lamb. You finally get to approach the altar. And at this point, they say maybe 100,000, maybe even more than that lambs each year. You get up for this one sacred special moment that you've been wait, kind of waiting for all year. You've traveled all this way for. And the priest sacrifices it and moves on. And it's over like that. It's done and over. And on your way out of the temple... You pass the priest that sold you the lamb at 15 times, and you see him selling your lamb to someone else. Do you see how this worked? And Jesus, man, he had to, like, like the, his response, his reaction to this of turning tables over and driving people out, that was his response after sleeping on it at night, right? Think what would have happened if he had just cut loose. I mean, we might have had fire and brimstone right then and there if, if he had just cut loose that first day. And Scripture says no one stops him because everyone felt it. This is a ripoff. I'm getting ripped off. And Jesus takes a hard look at the temple, and he sees two grievous sins. The first is that the priest and those at the temple and those working around the temple are sinning against God himself because they've commercialized something intended to be holy. And when you commercialize the sacred, you violate it. And so it is this tragic sin against God, but maybe even um, at least as equally bad, there is this horrendous sin against your neighbor. It's not a new sin. It's been pretty consistent through, through Israel's life and career. Um, but I would tell you and warn you even still today, if you want to get God's attention in all the wrong way, Exploit someone. Exploit your friend or your neighbor, even, even a stranger. Uh, I want to share a couple of words from Amos, just as a side note, to let you know how strongly God is opposed to exploitation of others in any way, shape, or form. Look what it says uh, in Amos in chapter 2, verse 6. Seven. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of evil, even for four, for three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. So this is kind of their sin that Amos is talking about. Go on to that next verse. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. 
you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks. The last of you with fish hooks. All right, so long story short, like I said, if you exploit others, especially related to faith or religion, you're going to get all kinds of attention from God. And it's going to be the kind that you don't want. Jesus says, out of just frustration and anger, and um, he says in verse 17, My temple will be called a house of prayer for the nations. And that for the nations part is, is so important that that's in there. I mean, it's just three words, but, but in that for the nations, you see the fullness of the heart of God. It is an incredibly inclusive message. This, this selling and buying and trading and all this probably happened in the Gentile court. So the Gentile, Gentile essentially just means non-Jewish. So uh, you couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. You couldn't go into the holy place. But there was a place for you in the temple, even if you weren't Jewish. But that's where the temple priest set up this market. And Jesus said, no, this is for the nations. You are God's chosen people. Yeah, absolutely. But you are set up, even if you look in the Old Testament, you see that God chooses Israel to be a blessing to the nations, to all people. And how can this happen if we take advantage of the disadvantaged? How can we be a blessing to the nations if we neglect the cry of the needy or if we choose judgment over service? You guys are crooks. And right then we know that the chief priests and the, the, the head honchos of the faith of that day plot to kill Jesus. The battle lines are drawn. And so, Jesus leaves the city. Got a couple of scenes. Let's look at the next couple of verses in verse uh, 20 through 21. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree. You remember this fig tree before? And it was withered from the roots. And Peter, who is Captain Obvious of the disciples, remembered and said to Jesus, Hey, Rabbi, isn't that the tree you cursed? And when you read these stories together, all right, so the story of Jesus overturning tables in the temple and the, the temple is this place of explo exploitation and, and commercialization and it's bracketed by two fig tree stories. It's supposed to hit us. The fig tree is the temple. Do you see that? The fig tree, like the temple, have all the appearance of health. The fig tree, like the temple, has, has the appearance of fruitfulness, being, being filled with promise. The, the fig tree, like the temple, has the potential for fruit, but it is barren. It looks healthy, but it's sick. So I recently took my daughter out to lunch, um, it's one of those off days in school, and so uh, I said, 
you know, because I'm not too bright. Okay, honey, where do you want to go eat for lunch? We'll go wherever you want to go. And what did she say? McDonald's. Um, and, uh, but, you know, it's her day, so I let her pick. And, uh, you know, she tells me the kind of Happy Meal that she wants. And I'm standing at the counter, and she immediately runs to the, to the play place. And, and I'm sitting there at the counter. I order hers, I'm, and I'm talking to, I, I guess, the waitress. And uh, um, I'm trying to figure out what in the world am I going to eat here? I, I mean, what? It, I, I don't know. I mean, I know what they have, but, like, kind of just craving something different. And they had these really cool video menu boards behind, behind the counter. Have you guys seen these? So, uh, and they flash and they show different things and show, and it showed pictures of chicken nuggets and it showed pictures of a salad. I was like, really? And, uh, uh, it showed a picture of this hamburger. Um, and I didn't know if it was a, I didn't know if it was a Big Mac or, um, uh, I didn't know what kind of hamburger. Well, I'd never seen this kind of hamburger. And, uh, and I asked the lady, I said, man, I don't know. Can I have that one? That hamburger looks, that, that looks pretty good. Which, what, what kind is that? And the lady looked at me, and she looked up at the sign, and she said, you know, that's just for looks. We don't have that one here. Um, it's just for looks. So now, um, I, I, I mean, I would say my relationship with McDonald's was already kind of tenuous. Um, now, now what is my relationship with McDonald's? Am I a fan? Am I a customer? Um, is, is it a place I, I, I recommend or promote? Uh, is it a place I want to bring others to? Uh, I'm going to go a step further, and so bear with me here. Not only am I not a fan of McDonald's, not only am I not a customer of McDonald's, I am a McDonald's terrorist. I am. I am. I'm not, not going to make a bomb and blow it up. Um, but I don't want to go there. And, and I'm, I'm going to tell as many people as I can about my experience so they don't go there. Right? Um, if they close McDonald's down, I'll be glad. That's a terrorist, right? Like, I, as a Christian, I don't want ill for the workers there, but I, I think it'd be awesome. They shutter those doors. Are, are you with me? Is there any? See, see, now I'm recruiting. Isn't that the definition of a terrorist? Like, I, I wish that place ill. I, I wish it, I wish it, you know, it went from that, I, I just don't like it, to now I actually am opposed to it in, in pretty significant ways. And Jesus is saying, in, in his exchange at the temple and the way Mark frames it with the fig trees, Jesus say, is saying, you better watch out. The same thing can happen to you and to your church. How many of you have been to a church like this? How many of you have been burned by, by a church, by a religion or a religious system or denomination that, that, that has all the promise, right? 
That, that man, it looks like a full tree and leaf. It looks like it could be really good and helpful and, and beneficial. And you walk through the doors and you go through the whole service and the whole motion and not a single person says a word to you. Have you been there? How many people do you meet on a regular basis that are not just going to church, they're not just not fans of church, but they are actually church terrorists because of an experience they've had. Do you know them? I know people who the thought of walking through the doors of a church scares them to death, even to the point where they are shaking. Why? What kind of experience do you think they had? Let me turn it inward a little bit. Like, how important is it for you, especially you guys who are members here at Aspen Grove, to make time for guests when they come? They say that most people make a decision about a church uh, within the first 15 minutes. So that's before, don't blame me, that's before they ever hear the teaching, right? First 15 minutes, do you think that's fair? How important is it that you follow up with that conversation with your best friend compared to connecting with a guest, making them feel comfortable, making them feel welcome? Jesus says, I think, make sure your church, make sure your Christianity, make sure your faith doesn't become like McDonald's, filled with promise and potential to deliver something meaningful and real and good and sacred and holy. But when you get up close, you realize it's just for looks. Is it enough just to show up on church on Sunday? Oh, it looks good. Is it enough? And Jesus is so upset in the temple. He's upset at the fig tree for, for kind of this false promise, this counterfeit. It's, it's false advertising, right? And Jesus, man, I just can't handle it. There's a passage later in the New Testament that talks about hot or cold. You remember what that says? Because you definitely don't want to be warm. He says this, this whole picture of the temple and religion and what is happening here, this whole picture is all wrong. This is all wrong, and I've lost my temper. You, you completely misunderstand the, the purpose of the temple. You, you've completely missed it. You've missed the forest for the trees. And so as is so common in Mark, remember people misunderstand about what does it mean to be the Messiah? Uh, what is the, what is, they, they misunderstand what does the kingdom of heaven look like? You know, they misunderstand all this. You know, even the disciples are asking for places of leadership on Jesus' right and left when he gets this great throne. You know, they just they keep misunderstanding what is the core of this? What is, the, what is, what is at the center of this? And so Jesus... As he does time and time and time again in Mark, takes the opportunity to teach. And I want to share a couple of verses with you. At the end of this story, after Captain Obvious says, hey, that's, isn't that the... Jesus says some incredibly powerful words in verses 22 through, um, through 26. And man, you need to highlight these. These need to be on your refrigerator. These need to be on the dash of your car. These words need to fill your life. 
Think, think of where Jesus' mind is. Peter says, hey, isn't that the tree? Jesus is still reeling after what's happened at the temple, and Jesus' immediate response is, have faith in God. So I need to write the way you're thinking about religion. I need to write the way you're thinking about faith and, and what it means to be my follower. I need to write the way you're thinking about what it means to be a Christian. And he says, all right, I'm just going to jump straight into this. He, and the first thing is have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, twice in, this, in, in just these few verses, Jesus says, truly, I tell you. When Jesus says, truly, I tell you, what's that mean? You better perk up and pay attention. And Jesus says again in, in verse 24, Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Don't you see in the, in the context of fig trees and false promises and temples that have missed the whole point. Jesus takes a few quick verses. Says, let, me, let me get you straight here. The first is for you to, to have faith in God, to, to, to believe without doubt. And he uses this mountains reference. You know, it's a Dr. Seuss line, kids, you'll move mountains. You, you know, and, oh, man, only me. Um, but he talks about, you know, if you have this kind of faith, you can tell this mountain to move from here to here. And, and I don't know that he means physical mountains, although maybe that's possible. Um, I think what he means is when you have this kind of faith in God, it will change the landscape of your life. Does that make sense? This kind of faith in God doesn't just show up this, on Sunday morning. This kind of faith in God changes things. It changes your relationship with, with your spouse. It changes your relationship with your kids. It changes the, the way you interact with the people in your office or your workspace. Are you with me? This kind of, this kind of faith, this kind of religion, this kind of Christianity has, is, is the way that a small church affects change in a community. You see how that happens? This kind of faith in God changes you. Maybe there's that sin that you've been struggling with and it feels like this chain, like how am I ever going to have victory over this sin? But no, this, this kind of faith can change things. Are you with me? So that's what this is about. And then he says, man, you have faith in God. And then he says, I want you to pray. And it, it, it is a prayer filled with belief. It, it, it's a prayer, not just, you know, it's not just your Christmas list of here, here are the things I'd want, but it is this powerful thing that, that moves and breathes. And um, man, it, it is a powerful thing that, that can shake nations. And he says, man, that's, that's what it's about. And then finally, I don't want you to miss this one either. You know, if he says, you know, true religion, faith, church, Christianity is, is characterized by, by faith in God, faith without doubt, prayer-filled belief, the last one is, this is about forgiveness. And if you're walking around and showing up on Sunday, but you haven't forgiven your friend or your neighbor, you need to go handle that business first. Because this 
is about forgiveness. And he doesn't put any qualms on that. He doesn't seem to say, well, if they do this, yes. And if they do this, no. Like, no, no, no. This is, this is the big stuff. The, the real forgiveness you know, this is not just the, you know, of course I forgive you. No, this is, this, this kind of forgiveness can only take place in here. Do you know the difference? I said, that's what it's about. I love this, uh, this quote by William Barclay. He said, unless our religion makes us better and more useful people, uh, unless our religion makes our homes happier and makes our life better and easier and, and, and makes life better and easier for those with whom we are brought into contact, it is not religion at all. And Jesus, in the context of this whole thing, said, you know, true religion, true belief, true Christianity bears fruit. Are you with me? Remember the figs? Even he says it in Matthew in chapter 7 verse 16. Jesus says, you will know them. You will recognize them by their figs. I added the figs, right? You know, you will know this thing is real. You will know your faith is real, your prayer life is real, that forgiveness is real when you see the fruit of it. And so the question is, what is the fruit of your forgiveness? Do you have it? Can you point to it? Can you show people it? I'm not saying in a pretentious, showy kind of way, but when you forgive people in a real meaningful way, it's obvious, right? What is the fruit of your forgiveness? What is the fruit of your prayer? Are you praying and believing? Are you just casting them up because you're, you, you think you're supposed to? What is the fruit of your belief? What's the fruit of your belief with your neighbors or in your workplace? Or are you just a leafy tree? In just a moment, we're going to enter into a time of communion. Man, it's such an important part of our, our worship together because it doesn't matter. Uh, uh, maybe, you've, maybe you've failed at this a thousand times. I know I have. I know there are moments look back, man, God, where's my fruit? I need, to, I need to be more active in this. I'm compelled to respond in ways that matter and make a difference. And in communion, we get to, be, uh, we get to move into this awesome closeness, this awesome u- unity with Jesus Christ who forgives us all of our sins. But then at the same time, we are compelled to move and re- react and respond to our world based on what he has done for us. So in just a moment, I'm going to say a prayer. We have three tables set up around the room that have the cup, which represents the blood of Jesus Christ poured out for us. The, the bread, which represents his broken body. He is our example to follow. He said, I'll show you how to do this. Just watch me. Follow me. Follow my example. And after I say this prayer, I just dismiss you to get up and enjoy this time of communion. Share it with others. Share it with, uh, maybe you need a private moment. But man, I'd really love to see us. And I know we're not very good at this because we're, we're kind of like this, this kind of people. Um, but I'd love for you to share with others. Maybe just pray for fruit. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much for your word and for your teaching, for
man, the way that you used, used Peter to translate this message to Mark and the way Mark, even, even man, thousands of years later, it's, uh, it's so vibrant and real and, and, and life-giving. Father God, I pray that, that we would be a fruitful people, that we would be a fruitful church, concerned not just with the appearance of, of churchiness or, or religion, but concerned with the deep things that matter to you. Father God, compel us to have a faith in you that, is, <laughs> that, that can change things, that does change things. Help us to be a church that changes the landscape of our, of our community, even here and now. Even when we don't know how, God, move us in that way. Let us trust you. Father God, let us pray big, pray pray belief-filled, power-filled prayers, belief not in our own power but in yours. And Father God, let this be a place of forgiveness. Um, Father God, we know that you've forgiven us and we accept this, this life, this commission you've called us to. We thank you for the sacrifice of your son Jesus, for the example that he is to us. Give us the courage to follow. We love you, Father, and in your Son, Jesus' name, everyone together says, Amen. I stand up and I dismiss you to a time of communion together.